My favorite part is when Matt tells us exactly how many minutes we can record before his computer blows up. <laughs> it is telling me we have 21 hours. We're good. Okay. We, now, everybody remember, we can't go longer than 21 hours. <laughs> That's a hard out. We have a, I, we have a hard out at Friday at 6 p.m. I only signed up for 20 hours. Welcome to Freely Filtered the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NEFJC journal clubs. NEFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor, or your neighbor's doctor, or your kid's pediatrician, just about anybody except a hodgepodge of people you never met on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have most of the filtrate plus two special guests. We have Dr. Sadia Khan, a cardiologist from Northwestern. Sadia, can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Sadia Khan. I'm an assistant professor of medicine and preventive medicine at Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine. My research interests are focused on clinical uh, trials of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HEFPEF. And I'm really interested in the study we're going to be talking about today, talking about diuretic resistance. Excellent. Excellent. We had a little bit of technical difficulty, but I'd like to introduce our second guest, Paul Welling of Johns Hopkins. Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Welling. Um, I'm a, a professor of medicine, nephrology, and physiology. My interests lie in electrolyte disorders, molecular mechanisms of salt balance, hypertension, and we have a little interest in um, uh, diuretic resistance. And the regular members of the filtrate. Swapnil? Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmath. I'm a nephrologist, epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at hswapnil. Samira? I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. I tweet at SS Farouk. And Matt. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University. I tweet at nephro underscore sparks. And I'm looking around on the internet to see who is mispronouncing the word renin. And our thoughts go out to Jenny, who is trying to write a grant. We miss you, Jenny. Look forward to having you back in the future. One of the paradoxes of medicine is that some of the most effective therapies are among the least rigorously studied. Take the case of colchicine for familial Mediterranean fever. Colchicine effectively eliminates pain crisis, but does it prevent the downstream effects like amyloidosis or kidney failure? Well, we really don't know because we can't randomize to pa patients to drug or placebo when the short-term benefits of the drug are so dramatic. It's just not ethical. So we're left using historic controls and other cheats. Diuretics for heart failure are another area that is surprisingly understudied. And when it is studied, it uses less than the most rigorous trial design. Here are the opening lines from a recent review of the New England Journal of Medicine. Most accepted pharmacologic treatments for heart failure are supported by evidence from large clinical trials. In contrast, Evidence from large, well-controlled clinical trials to guide the use of diuretics among the most frequently used drugs in heart failure is generally lacking. And many aspects of the drugs in heart failure seem counter to modern notions of heart failure management. 
we know that the neurohormonal response to diuretics is upregulating the sympathetic nervous system, the renin-angiotensin system, and aldosterone levels, all of which are systems that if we block with beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, and aldosterone antagonists respectively, improve survival and heart failure. So using these drugs, these diuretics, which are the cornerstone of heart failure management, seems to generate the neurohormonal milieu we are actively trying to suppress. This is particularly interesting because there is a new heart failure medication on the block. And though we are not certain of how they work, these class of drugs is among the most powerful life-saving drugs we have ever discovered for heart failure. The SGLT2 inhibitors are turning out to be an unexpected revolution in multiple areas of nephrology and cardiology. These drugs block glucose reabsorption in the proximal tubule, and quite unexpectedly, this is resulting in improved outcomes in many conditions we never thought would happen. One of the consequences of these drugs is they cause a modest diuresis. Tonight, we are going to go deep into this diuresis and see if we can unlock at least some of the mysteries inherent in the flozins. Swapnil, do you want to start us off on the methods for this study? Sure. And, and you know, these drugs have been phenomenal. Uh, you know, they, they don't only reduce blood sugars. And the, the reduction in blood sugars is a little bit. It's not that impressive. Uh, but they reduce heart failure, they reduce mortality, they reduce kidney failure, right? So uh, they should be added to the drinking water. Um, but before we uh, do that, uh, let's let's uh, see what they found out in this study. Um, unlike, you know, most studies that we have discussed here, which have been large epidemiological studies or, you know, large multicenter clinical trials, this study is a little bit different. It's a it's a mechanistic study. Uh, so the number of patients is uh, something that, you know, Matt would appreciate uh, doing my studies it's only you know about 12 uh, in each group or that's so that's the only reason why i agreed to do this <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of like one of those my studies uh, and the kind of things they did to these uh, volunteers uh, the patients uh, who came in is also you know pretty intense uh, so this is a single center study done at yale it was funded by uh, the manufacturer of uh, um that's boring garingelheim uh, but it was an investigator-initiated um, and conducted study. Um, for uh, Let's look at the patient population. This was patients with... Swapnil, can you just give us kind of the 20,000-foot view of what this was before we go deep into the specifics? Right, right. So the TLD, TLDR version is that um, this was a crossover trial. So patients with high heart failure and diabetes got empagliflozin or placebo for two weeks. Then after a washout period, you know, those who got empagliflozin instead got placebo and vice versa. Uh, and the cool thing they did was on, on the first day as well as the last day, so, you know, day one and day 14, they got the patients in and they did a bunch of measurements. They, they measured their hormones, they measured how much sodium they excreted, uh, they measured their response, you know, with empagliflozin or placebo or after they got a dose of, uh, of um, uh, bumetanide. So it's, it's, it's a, and, and the um, number of measurements, as you will see, is, is phenomenal. They did a lot of measurements on these people over that 24-hour period. Uh, so, before Paul, so Paul, when you read the methods for this study, does this feel like a familiar study? Is this something that we've done with other diuretic trials, or is this really kind of unusual? I, I think this is uh, kind of special. I, I really like this. It's very mechanistic study, uh, precise measurements, everything just about that you could think to measure done, I think, pretty carefully on the right group of folks to study. So I, I really, uh, I thought this was uh, really elegant. I don't usually see this kind of thing uh, in the literature. Maybe the 
old classic literature where you have a couple of patients and nice charts, but this is really a, a beautiful study, I thought. Okay. Thank you. Sorry, Swap. It, well, is, it is truly elegant. It was, uh, I, I have to agree, you know, it's a well-done mechanistic study. It, it was hard to find uh, many loopholes. So the, the population was stable heart failure, uh, which was diagnosed by an advanced heart failure cardiologist at, uh, at Yale. Um, and, and they didn't have like a HEF-PEF or HEF-REF kind of a, uh, inclusion criteria. Uh, so as you will see, uh, both kind of patients were included. They needed to be stable. So, you know, no one who was hospitalized and, and their meds had to be stable, not someone who needed, you know, di up titration in the last uh, few weeks or in the next few weeks going on. Uh, they needed to have di type 2 diabetes, of course, uh, because these are diabetic medications. And, you know, at that time, I guess when the study was conceived, the, the results from DAPA-HF and um, DAPA-CKD and so on hadn't yet come out. They had to have uh, some amount of renal dysfunction. Um, so their GFR had to be greater than 45, but you know, uh, people with GFR less than 45 are excluded. And uh, about uh, the other exclusion criteria is if, if um, they were, they need not be on diuretics, but the diuretics that were allowed were loop diuretics and aldosterone antagonists. Uh, so, you know, 25 milligrams of spironolactone or uh, 50 milligrams, up to 50 milligrams of uh, epilerinone or less. The important thing there is that that dose, those um, aldosterone antagonists are actually pretty weak or almost unnoticeable diuretics, you really need to crank up the dose quite a bit higher to get significant sodium excretion at, with those drugs. But essentially, nobody on a thiazide could be enrolled. Is that right? Exactly. Nobody on a thiazide could be enrolled. So so they are, you know, stable, really stable heart failure patients. I and think. that GFR limit, they were a little soft with that, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Late in the study, they couldn't enroll exactly. patients. Exactly. They couldn't enroll patients and they had to relax it. And they took patients with, you know, worse renal disease also. And I'm trying to trigger MAD, but it doesn't seem to be happening. Um, so uh, <laughs> they, they did exclude... <laughs> Yeah. That's, the only, that's the only reason you can I've been renal. here yelling and no one's paying attention. <laughs> I mean, how I mean, I mean this is cardio to... this is a cardio renal study, right? <laughs> I I have I have I've made an apparatus that blocks that word out. You can't even utter it anywhere near my computer. It's funny like it's heart failure heart failure everywhere but then they say renal you know it's like I don't know if you can if you don't say cardiac failure why do you have to say renal failure heart failure kidney failure anyway so, so, <laughs> do you guys have this in cardiology so in nephrology there is a war on the word renal do, is this is there anything analogous to trying to simplify the language of cardiology going on I just learned of this war recently during a paper editing process where I had written renal a thousand times in a paper I must have been the editor oh. that one. <laughs> Thankfully, a kind colleague got to it before any external reviewer had to embarrass me like that. I can't. Well, it looks like this one did not go through the renal editor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the only thing that I can think of is some people don't like the HEF PEF abbreviation for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and some people will say huff puff, and some people will say half PEF, but. Yeah, I feel like I, I in residency was uh, chastised by a cardiologist for saying I can't even say it. <laughs> you, you're so proper. <laughs> what, what did you say? What, what did you say? No, they, they Spell wanted, it out they with your me, fingers. They wanted me to say it out. Like I couldn't use the abbreviation HEF-PEF. I feel like it single-handedly has been Sanjeev Shah's goal in life is to get people to accept abbreviating heart failure with preserved ejection fraction as HEF-PEF and I don't know if it's going to work. There's still a lot of resistance. I wonder if I need to get him on my anti-renal campaign. 
He, he, I mean, he accomplished it in 10 years. What did he have buttons? <laughs> that's the key to any management is get a, get a good button that's right yeah, yeah we were at the exclusion criteria so uh, the renal aspects okay. uh, so they, the diuretics, they did ex- diuretics um, and the they, GFR the GFR then they were excluding people who were um, at risk of you know frequent urinary tract infections incontinence pyelonephritis because we know um, SGLT2 inhibitors do increase the risk of UTIs no I think the incontinence was so they could get accurate urinary measurement right that's true the incontinence yeah. makes sense for that for for yeah. um, because the urinary measurements are a, are a key aspect yeah so that was it uh, the study design this is where all the key aspects are so this was randomized double blind placebo controlled but a crossover, so either they got uh, two weeks of 10 milligram empagliflozin or matched placebo uh, for 14 days, followed by a two-week washout period, and then uh, crossover to the you know whatever they had not got before. And all the analysis you will see is from within patients. So you know the patients are being compared to themselves when they were on placebo versus empagliflozin, and uh, there was matched placebo. You know I don't know how the matching was done and how the placebos look like. Is this uh, like a capsulology uh, issue? Well, I, or I, so? I, 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 I was just waiting for you to say the study drug. No one is saying the study drug. It's empagliflozin. Let's go through. Everybody, let's hear, let's hear, let's hear your best empagliflozin. <laughs> Paul, what do you got? Empagliflozin. Sorry, isn't this the DAPA trial? <laughs> That's so yeah, your pole, your pole flopped. <laughs> DAPAgliflozin or empagliflozin. Why even try? Just say empa. Yeah, I think I think that's getting popular. DAPA, empa, canna. Because no one can say it. Can you imagine patients who can't say metoprolol trying to say empagliflozin? Empagy and dapagy. I like it. So uh, they got empagliflozin or placebo or matched placebo. And hopefully the placebo was, you know, matched very well to the empagliflozin. Any capsulology coming? Uh, yeah, so I did a little bit of a review. We've talked about gliflozins in the past and a little bit of the history coming from the apple bark. And so I wanted to do a little bit of a overall history of the SGL2 inhibitors. To start, dapagliflozin was actually the first SGL2 inhibitor to be approved in the world. It was approved in 2012, 2011, around then. And, and then the FDA actually re- recommended to kind of overturn that because of concerns of breast and urinary bladder cancer, as well as some possible liver damage. And so those concerns were somehow resolved in um, 2014. And then we had kind of the approval of these other gliflozins. Um, and so um, there's a nice table that I can link to in the show notes that reviews the differences in these gliflozins and particularly their oral bioavailability. And EMPA is actually the, at the higher end with its oral bioavailability around um, 75 to 80%. And actually the highest species are the mice, Matt, that have oral bioavailability of over 90%. Um, and canagliflozin is actually on the um, lower end of that. Um, there's been some talk briefly in the past about specificity for SGL2 versus SGL2, SGLT1, which is expressed in the bowel. Um, and there are some nice studies that have shown that the half maximal inhibitory concentration or the IC50, which tells you how much of the drug you need to inhibit 50% of the biological function of a certain transporter or protein is actually uh, much, much lower for SGL2 than it is for SGLT1, kind of proving its um, specificity. And so most of the uh, gliflozins are metabolized predominantly um, by an enzyme to an inactive metabolite. Um, And for EMPA and DAPA, 
the majority of this metabolite is eliminated by the kidney with very little parent drug being um, recovered. I did capsulology for the wrong glyphosin, but I'll share that anyway. But dapagliflozin um, at the 10 milligram dose is a very perfect looking yellow rhomboid, which is a film coated tablet. Um, and the trade name is Farsiga. And I wanted to share that they have a really interesting ad campaign and their kind of tag for the drug is the pill that starts with F because the three things you need to cure your diabetes are fitness, food, and Farsiga. And so that's why I picked APA over EMPA today. And on that note... Uh, the drug that uh, begins with D is actually the drug that begins with F? Yes. The brand name. Farsiga. Farsiga. And then EMPA is Jardians, right? Yeah, that wasn't mm-hmm. as, as fun to... And canagliflozin yeah. is which one? And canagliflozin is Invocana. Invocana. At least that has, you know, Canna in the name. Is there is there any other li- li- uh, licensed drug? Uh, there are a bunch, but I don't think they have been licensed. Like there's Ertuglifosin and Sotaglifosin. There's three in the United there. States, though. Right. I, I think there's one more. There's Ertu, Ertuglifosin, I think, is approved. A few other ones in this in this table. Um, Tofoglifosin, Lucioglifosin, Ipragliflozin. There's a bunch. As I was looking at capsulology, I realized your bookcase seems to be color-coded, Samira. Is that right? It's like yeah, red books yeah, and then green books. Mm-hmm. By design, yeah. yeah. Oh, so Good you eye. would uh, rate, rate highly on room my, rate my room. <laughs> <laughs> I recently curated those books to remove, you know, titles that we did not want to share. <laughs> <laughs> an, important, an important Zoom safety tip, that's right. <laughs> I realized that so, after the ASN video went live. Okay. Oh, now I have to go back and look at that. Okay. Um, so we were on the uh, after capsulology. Let's talk about what they actually did because you know, as as Paul has pointed out, this was a very elegant study. And and so what they did was on 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 each of the arms. Uh, so I guess this would happen four times to each patient on day one and day fourteen of each study arm. So. Day one and day 14 of either empagliflozin or placebo, uh, the patients who had consented, they came into the hospital uh, and they came in and they, they got an IV and they, for an hour they lied down in the bed quietly. And these things are important because uh, if you are, you know, uh, if you're standing up and you're walking in, uh, the levels of your hormones may not be where you want it to be. So, so starting right from uh, the beginning, uh, they have taken extreme care to make sure the measurements they're getting are right. They even noted the angle of the bed uh, for the first visit, and that's the angle that they used when they came for the second visit. After that hour, they took uh, blood and uh, you know put it on ice. Then they took a bunch of biomarkers, including hormones, at each of those four visits. Uh, they had been asked to perform an overnight fast the night prior to the study visit, and uh, at the beginning of each of those four visits, um, vital signs including height, weight, uh, and blood and urine samples were collected. After the one hour of recumbency, the blood volume was determined by using I-131 albumin. Now, I was going to read up how albumin is used to measure blood volume, but I saw Matt was doing a lot of research on it, so I'm going to let him explain that if he actually finished his research. I still haven't fin- figured it out, but I did find a paper from 1949 um, that mentioned that the albumin has about uh, 4.9% tyrosine, um, which will bind to iodine. And so if you have it um, radio, radioactive, then you can label the albumin. And so you can inject it into a person's body and then you can 
uh, take certain intervals of blood out, measure how much radioactivity is in there, and assess how much blood volume someone has. That, that makes sense. But I, but I still haven't. I started in 1949. I was just working my way up into the 70s. Maybe, you know, if we continue for 21 hours, oh. I'll finish. What was the, um, what was the last time someone actually did this for, or did that technique for a, for this sort of assessment? I, I, this is the first time I read about it. Yeah, I had to look for it as well. Paul? So, it, it, I mean, it's used uh, not in humans so much, not even in uh, a mouse or rat models, but going back, this is, this is like the gold standard uh, way of measuring uh, vascular volume that uh, we call it a dilution method. And uh, Matt probably knows this because he measures GFR in mice. Uh, you inject something that is cleared by the glomerulus. Uh, albumin isn't, but there's a, a first-order decay of the concentration, and that reflects the dilution in the vascular volume. So you can figure that out by just looking over time uh, the dilution of albumin. It's really clever, and this is the gold standard. So, and again, for this, they, I guess they could do that because the sample size was, you know, small. They weren't dealing with thousands of patients. It was, you know, uh, a very few small number of patients. But the cra- uh, but the craziness doesn't stop there, right? The no, 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 step, it doesn't. The very next step, they're putting in deuterium oxide. Yeah, it's just heavy so water, got- right? It is heavy water. I, I, it, I think they could have done a little better job of, of describing some of these I mean, methods. that's what it took to get published mm-hmm. in yeah. 1949. But, uh, it would be nice to have a supplement that really went into depth about that. And that was, I found that disappointing. And they just basically say we use the I-131 albumin method and that's it. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, as if we use that all the time. Did they cite that paper from 1949? No, I had to find no, that. No, I, no there's I no reference. any citation. There's no yeah, reference, reference for that. And that paper, uh, they basically said, we tried this in four humans, and it seemed to work fairly well. <laughs> and, and the principle is pretty sound. No, but the, but the, the studies from 1949, they're very conversational. They're not very rigorous, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, I think, actually, I think this has been around for a while, so I'm feeling kind of old now. You know, this is something that we would have been taught even in medical school, like this, like a, a first year of physiology. This is how you measure volumes and whatnot. So uh, it was taught once ago when, like, the dinosaurs were roaming around. Uh, I'm feeling old that you guys don't know this stuff. <laughs> you know, like medical education standards have also dropped. Like, we don't even know what the Krebs cycle is these days. Okay, so the I-131 was designed was used to determine blood volume. Is that right? Right. What's the what's the do the heavy water for? I don't know. That's did anyone find out? Presumably, so that's heavy water to- total body water. That's total body water. Right. Right. So total body water and that was uh, immense volume, volume, Joel. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, that's all I drink is heavy water. <laughs> is that the water with bubbles? Yeah. yeah that's right, Matt. That's right. <laughs> drinking seltzer. That's pretty much heavy water. And then they got they actually got uh, a 500 ml bolus of 5% dextrose in sterile water, uh, which was given over half an hour, uh, followed by a continuous infusion of 100 ml per hour to to optimize the urine clearance. They say in the early part of the study visit. Now, what happened after they started the study is that there was a short of 5% dextrose. So for 12 patients, they, they instead of 5% dextrose, they replaced that with 500 ml uh, of uh, Gatorade for over 30 minutes, followed by 100 ml per hour of Gatorade. Now, Gatorade, of course, as others have pointed out during the chat, is not just 
sugar water it does contain electrolytes as well and during the chat when this came up perry uh, wilson who's one of the authors uh, he he said you know it, it is a concern but it's less of a concern because the measurements were within the patients the patients who got gatorade got gatorade again hopefully that would yeah, take away when everybody serves in their own control and yeah. when the purpose of this fluid administration was really just to make sure they had adequate urine output I, i'm not, i wasn't too concerned about it yeah so so they got a bunch of measurements for sorry 1.53 hours 4.5 hours 6 hours so you know they were doing blood sampling and urine sampling throughout uh, 3 hours of getting after getting the empa or the placebo they got iv bumetanide which was administered in the dose equal to you know whatever their home uh, loop diuretic dose was up to 4 mg so people may have been on different doses of loop diuretic so whatever loop diuretic they were on they converted that to the same dose of bumetanide and gave that one dose iv sorry how do you make uh, that adjustment if there are enough 80 mg of ferrosamide how much how much uh, bumex is that oh the regular joel pimp on the podcast. <laughs> I can't help myself. I'm just a born educator. Cardiology <laughs> <laughs> doc. So Zadia, so what's the ratio there? I, I would do uh, 40 to 1. 40 to 40 milligrams of ferrosamide equals one milligram of bumetanide. Yep. Okay. And I'm so, still so, fixated on what exact dose of ferrosamide they're on. I want a printout of every 20 patient and what they're on. I don't want this mean, median. There's no way they were on ferrosamide. Nobody... Was anybody on or whatever? I don't care what they were on. Just give it to me. Sadia, yeah. what, what do you mean they were not on frostbite? What are you what are you what are you getting at? Help us out. That dose is so incredibly high. They're all deaf, and none of them are actually peeing. It's just not a reasonable dose, daily dose for furosemide, based on what they reported. Well, if you look at the dose of bumetanide they gave, it was eighty milligrams a day. That's not that unusual. No, 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 no. They. I'm sorry. They they were the they said the ferrosamide equivalent was 240 milligrams a day, right? That was the that was the, the mean. The mean. mean. But look at the median; it's 80. If you look at the amount they gave, was 1.8 milligrams of Bumex, which is less than 80 of Lasix in one day. So I, I don't understand exactly. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay. Okay. So I guess I guess that it must have been skewed. So a few. I spent there. most of the time dealing with that one question. <laughs> So, so it may have been a few people who got like, you know, maybe a thousand milligram of furosemide and the rest were all, you know, that, which know dragged the mean up perhaps. But with 20 patients, I think they could have had a supplement that just had the daily dose of meds for each yeah. of the 20 patients. It wouldn't be that hard. Yeah. And, and again, with four milligrams, so that would be about 160 of furosemide. That was the max dose of bumetanide that uh, they gave. Then they measured, you know, body weight at six hours. They also did a safety visit, they say, on day three and seven to ensure stable renal function again, uh, electrolytes and blood pressures. And of course, after the two-hour uh, washout, uh, they got the other win and the same procedures were done all over again. The endpoints were to see the the natriuretic effect of empaglifosin, both as, uh, you know, monotherapy. So in the first three hours or after they got the um, bumetanide dose. The main thing was they, had, they were trying to see if they the 14 days. At, at the end of 14 days, uh, would the empaglifosin translate into improved volume status uh, assessed by change in the, you know, I-131 uh, or maybe even the heavy water? Rewind. Do we think that 14 days of diuretics would put people in a steady state in a normal situation? I, I certainly think so. I think that within a week, you should probably be in a, ste a new steady state, at least in a normal, healthy rat. <laughs> How many of the patients were normal, healthy rats? I, I didn't see that in the table one, but I might have missed it. Hey, mice too. Just want to make sure we're keeping them out. I think the challenge was how euvolemic were they at baseline? 
supposedly mm-hmm. that was an assessment of made by a clinician that, that they were. I think stable. it was a specifically a heart failure expert, not an advanced just, heart failure, not just a clinician. <laughs> and so I wouldn't qualify for the record. I am not an advanced heart failure clinician. So my assessment of volume is, um, would not cons- be considered, but I, but facetiousness aside, I think we've learned a lot from devices like cardio mems where even where we think somebody is close to euvolemic on physical exam, the assessment of JVP, their PA pressures are still high. And so in a group where there is a lot of variability in EF and in the nt probian P as a surrogate measure, it makes you wonder a little bit about what that starting point was. Um, well, I'm sure the physical exam was very reliable in this population where the average BMI was 37. They uh, There's a little bit more detail about what they did, uh, what they measured. Uh, so one of their main criteria for the natriuretic effect was the FINA. So it's a fractional excretion of sodium. That's the primary uh, metric they used. The the fractional excretion of sodium, um, you know, we, I don't know how much FINA is useful in uh, acute uh, kidney injury to decide pre-renal or not, but in, but I guess it does give a good index of, of natriuresis. And Joel is frowning there. No, I'm not. I, I, went, I went and looked at a, a, a bit of the diuretic research in response to this, and it seems to be a pretty common way of measuring diuretic responsiveness. It seems reasonable to me. Anybody have Mm -hmm. concern about use of FINA here? Perfect. Perfect. Exactly what you should measure. They, for HEF-REF versus HEF-PEF, they used a 40% ejection fraction uh, criteria, I guess. EGFR was calculated with the CKD-EPI. I, I got to say, levels. if you're willing to inject radioactive iodine and heavy and give people heavy water to drink, you could measure. Come on, let's do some inulin clearance. Let's get some MAG-3. Let's measure GFR directly. <laughs> Come on now. Why are you going halfway? <laughs> I guess it was cardiologist. Exactly. <laughs> Why bother? They, they also needed someone to actually enroll in this study. Fair enough. Uh, so they did all those further measurements. Funnily enough, for stats, they used SPSS, they used SAS, and they used STATA. So these are, you know, they didn't use R. So I'm, I'm curious. Why did they not use R? Or Microsoft Excel. Uh, you know, you normally use one software, uh, either SPSS or SAS or Stata, but they used all three. Uh, I guess, you know, some of the data may have been challenging to analyze. And But the otherwise, the stats are pretty, you know, they used a linear mixed model because they have uh, within subject co- um, comparisons. So it was to, co- uh, to uh, incorporate that correlated outcomes within subject. So that's pretty legitimate. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's all I have. Oh, thank God. Okay, Matt. Matt, what did they find? So, um, let me think here. What are we going to do here? All right. First, let's take a look at the patients that they got. Can we, can we get a TLDR first right before we dive deep? Oh, TLDR? Okay. So, we have a, ma- I mean, a human study, 10 and 10, you know. Uh, they did not do a power calculation. Uh, they did not try to understand how many patients need to have in this study to find a difference. They made a primary outcome that was naturesis or sodium excretion of the urine. And then all of a sudden, FINA came out of nowhere. I'm sure that that was pre-specified and not just total sodium excretion. And we're going to try to understand how the natriuretic effect or the sodium excretion effect of empagliflozin is aug- um, augments um, loop diuretic sodium excretion and to see if we can find a mechanism for the naturesis from the SGLT2 inhibitor. So I think the first step, what they want to do is like, I look at these patients and see who they were. And so since there are only 20 patients, we can look pretty much detail about them. But um, one thing is that you'll note is 75% were men and they were in the age of 60 years old. 
and their average BMI was 37, and median hemoglobin A1C was 7. Uh, 40% were taking insulin, and 40% had heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HEFREF. And if you look at, this is the confusing part, we've already talked about it, it said the median dose of loop diuretics was 240 milligrams, plus or minus 300. Not sure how that happens. Uh, but then if you look on table one, you come down to it and you say the median dose is 80 milligrams with a range of 40 to 30. They don't say exactly what type of loop diuretics they're on. They don't tell us that, but we can always just guess. And let's see what happens. First, I think it's interesting to note, and that for, for an animal study, it's important. It's like, is my intervention actually doing what I think it's doing? And it doesn't make a lot of sense in what we're trying to figure out, but if you look at it, the effect of glucose in the urine happens at about an hour and a half in, where you have about 10% fractional excretion of glucose. And then about three hours in, it goes to about 30%, and it stays at that level. Um, throughout the rest of the time period. So I think that's a uh, interesting way to look at your study before you start moving into the rest of the results. Is the acute effect of empagliflozin changing parameters in which we would think it would, and it does. The other thing they did is break it up by GF. And, and are you surprised that they had the same amount of fractional excretion of glucose on day 14 as they have essentially at hour three? That to me was pretty impressive. That this drug, it doesn't seem, you don't seem to adapt to this and overcome it. I, yeah, I think that is very interesting. To, you, th you would think there would be compensatory mechanisms, right? and maybe you do start to see them a little bit because they come into the study at hour zero at day, at, on the day 14 day at 20%. And maybe if you're watching them closely, I'm not sure why, but it looks like it ranges from 20 to 30. So I'm not sure if that, it, you know, but in three hours you're having an effect. Well, and they also come in fasting, them. right? That was one of the, part of the protocol. They, do. they come in fasting. Yeah. I don't know if that makes a difference. Well, I guess it shows that this, this is a very important molecule that doesn't have a lot of compensatory mechanisms for the glucosuria effect. We Go kind ahead. of know that already by the disease, uh, hereditary glucosuria. So, you know, you, you might've seen some of these patients before they, they have this uh, for their whole life. So we know already just from this genetic disease, there's very, very little compensation. And, and what's the me molecular mechanism? Are they just missing SGLT2? Yes. They are. Okay. And that was one of the clues to uh, get this uh, drug started. So we knew those patients really don't have too much of a phenotype. So the drug was predicted just by the disease to probably be pretty safe. Are they protected from heart failure and proteinuria and all the other things that we think the drugs? You know, I have no, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. But what's interesting is that people who don't have diabetes from DAPA HF didn't get hypoglycemic. Mm -hmm. So how does that work? Yeah, that's, I always wondered that. Like, I guess you have to have a certain threshold of glucose in the in in the blood to filter it and be it reabsorbed in the proximal tubule, I'm not sure. Do we need to watch people without, I mean, should we be watching the glucose at all being on this? They don't have diabetes? Yeah, I mean, in, in those studies, in the non-diabetic studies, I don't think there was any hypoglycemia signal noted at all. At all. So what, we can move on now to, this is another hard thing, since this was a paper that would just came out. They don't actually label the figures, which is really kind of annoying. Um, hopefully when it gets into the beautiful, you know, circulation, pretty paper will. So this is, uh, I think, the money figure where it looks at what happens to the FINA. And so one thing you look at on panel A is the FINA with just uh, empagliflozin versus uh, placebo. And you see it, it really doesn't elicit much uh, of a natriuretic response at all. 
you get up in a one percent to one, you know about one percent range, and then Pag will close in. But it's a little bit more than placebo over a three-hour period. However, if you couple this with a uh, loop diuretic, uh, bumetanide, based on their home dose IV you get a much greater response, but still not as great of a response if you just had a completely naive individual. It would get up into the 6% range, 6 range in the um, impagliflozin group, and about the 4% range uh, at four and a half hours, about 2% more in the uh, in, in using the uh, impagliflozin. I, I want to just unpack what you said earlier. So yeah. diuretic naive patients that don't have heart failure, you give them bumetanide, and their fractional excretion of sodium goes to like 20%. Is that right? Much higher than this. Yeah, this is a pretty wimpy diuretic response. Remember, these patients were on loop diuretics before they came in. At least Probably 19 of them were. All but one. I wonder if that one, you know, but the one got both. So, you know, they, they all, there's no, you know, everyone got was in both groups. There's a crossover design. Mm-hmm. So. That's right. Okay, so we you can see clearly, I mean, though we don't have anybody who's diuretic naive, except for that one, we know that these patients are very sodium avid that their phenas are very low and their response to loop diuretics is suppressed. But they still get they still get a bump in their fractional excretion of sodium with the loop diuretic and they get a bump in their fractional excretion of sodium with empagliflozin. That's correct. And that persists in panel B where they show the, four, the day 14 data and it looks very similar. Maybe not quite as different, but it's still in the same sort of range, 2% difference. The next thing we want to look at is change in the volume status and red blood cell in, in indices. And I think this is a very interesting observation as well. Now, the only thing is that they didn't really label what was what. So I'm not sure exactly where the data is, is coming from on this. But basically, they show that empagliflozin had less volume status than in red blood cell indices than um, and in placebo about 20, 20 milliliters in change in blood volume and a uh, 200 milliliters change in plasma volume in the empagliflozin versus placebo, which didn't have really a change at all. And they go in some interesting discussion about this because one of the problems with giving loop diuretics in patients with heart failure is that it's so challenging because it's hard to really squeeze fluid out of their plasma. And so um, this patients with empagliflozin appeared to change that, and I think that that was a very interesting observation. This was something I had no idea about. They they referenced a, a patient a, a study from 1989 where people got furosemide 40 milligrams BID for a month, and their plasma volume didn't change at all. I was shocked, and I, I pulled the paper. Sure enough, that's what happened. And they, they kept emphasizing that this was unique to this empagliflozin or this SGLT2 inhibitor. The idea that it actually can reduce blood volume, something that is difficult to do with loop diuretics. I had no idea. The other thing they mentioned is that the patients <laughs> have a lot of blood draws. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it's... No, I th- there was applause. I mean, there's applause button. <laughs> there, there was applause. Like, is he going to shut up? <laughs> <laughs> but what I was going to say is they had so many blood draws as the patients in, in both groups lost a lot of blood to measure all these things. And you look at the hematocrit dropped in the patients that are on the placebo, but then actually uh, stayed the same on empagliflozin, meaning that you have a little bit of a rise in hematocrit. Um, and also, in, in, interestingly enough, a rise in um, EPO levels as well, which you would think would be opposite. I'm going to go back to another figure here. And since they're not labeled, I think it's one, two, three. And this is something that I think is important because they want to see if 
this change in uh, naturesis has any correlation with fractional excretion of glu glucose. So are you having an osmotic load inside the tubule that's pulling more sodium out? And so they did um, some correlations on fractional excretion of, of, of glucose on the y-axis, on the x-axis, they had phenol. And they basically showed that um, there, wasn't, there was an inverse correlation. They're actually, so the higher glucose excretion was not having more naturesis or sodium excretion, it actually had less. And so they could not explain this effect on just the, uh, the glucose, uh, glucoseuria that you're having with empagliflozin. So that was, uh, that, to me, that was very interesting too, because that seems like a very simple explanation. Yeah, they leaned into the fact that it wasn't an osmotic diuretic. The alternative explanation is you're blocking sodium reabsorption when you block glucose reabsorption. It still seems like there should be a nice association with glucoseuria and increased sodium excretion, but they didn't find that. Well, you look at that, you see the highest phena, or the, sorry, Fe glucose, whatever you call that, the glucose, <laughs> sorry, uh, you know, had the lowest phenas. Samir, did you want to say something? Well, to, to me, uh, this is just bizarre. I mean, I, I, I didn't expect this at all. And so now we have a, really a mystery. Um, how is it that inhibition of SGLT2 stimulates naturesis? I mean, I, I I just don't know what to say. I, I don't understand it. Sounds but like a grant. Yeah, I mean, uh, exactly. We just yeah. have to come up with a hypothesis. They also found a more uric acid in the urine, which I didn't really understand either. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they have reported uh, um, that serum uric acid goes down a little. Well, in this study, in the last trials, seven six to seven zero in four, fourteen days of therapy. I mean, that's right. that's pretty impressive. I mean, that's the you know I'm not steering uh, away from your time, hopefully, Matt, but uh, the, the, okay. the lack of uh, metabolic, you know, with, with most diuretics, you know, you get hypokalemia, you get hypomagnesemia, you get, uh, you know, with thiazides, you get uric acid going up. Uh, that's the beauty of these drugs is that they don't seem to cause any of these, you know, no hyper or hypokalemia. They're really nice drugs to use. So the other, uh, moving on to the next section is what happens to potassium, magnesium, and uric acid. We've already mentioned uric acid. Uh, and a little bit about potassium. So potassium, there was no differences noted in the six-hour potassium excretion or potassium serum level. There was a trend towards a lower um, urine magnesium in day one, but it was not significant. But obviously, the, there's you know, not a lot of patients here. And we mentioned the, the uric acid um, effect that I think was very surprising. The next section is about the neurohormonal activation and inflammatory markers. And I think uh, this section, I think uh, there's just a lot in there. Um, but we'll go through some of it, and I think that are notable. Um, one thing is renin, total renin, and aldo, they're all unchanged. The plasma norepinephrine level was significantly less pronounced uh, with the addition of empagliflozin compared to bumetanide alone, and so that was actually significant. So I just, want, I just want to understand this. So when you're looking at the placebo group, so I'm looking at table two biomarkers, I'm looking at norepinephrine, yep. and it says placebo change from beginning to end of treatment. Why would we expect any of these neurohormonal markers to change at all? 14 days of placebo, why? I think that's what one of the thoughts about why there's no change in the in the uh, plasma volume in patients receiving um, uh, loop diuretics because they have a neurohormonal um But these people were on loop diuretic. Yeah, but the concern also has been that with, you know, when you're increasing um, diuresis, especially with loop, 
uh, that there's all these, you know, well, bad neurohormonal activation. But these patients are unstable. Remember, diabetes. it's 14 days new of empagliflozin now. But not the placebo. That's the 14 days without the empagliflozin. Exactly. So I guess... Right. So saying that empagliflozin is, is producing natriuresis without causing any bad neurohormonal like, badness. I'm just saying they show pretty significant changes in these hormones in the placebo group. 14 days of placebo group seems to bump their total renin, bumps their norepi... I don't know if I'd necessarily call it bumps. I mean, those are still pretty small numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, are these numbers clinically significant or just statistically significant? Or is this the natural history of bad heart failure? Is that what you think? Mm-hmm. I, I think there's some heterogeneity and there's variability on a day-to-day basis. Okay. And, and the other thing is that you've got in that in that table too, we have got like, you know, 20, 30 comparisons going on. So who knows? Maybe it's just chance. I, it's hard to know. I, mean, I think that that's why it's interesting stuff here, but... Mm-hmm. I think the physiologic stuff, uh, you know, is some surprising uh, new findings uh, in these. It's hard to interpret. I, I agree. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, the norepinephrine is notably different. They did uh, urinary markers of Kim-1 NGAL, um, which would be a marker of uh, damage in albumin as well. And the only real signal they saw there was Kim-1, uh, which went up higher in the placebo, which would indicate maybe more kidney injury, but I think that's going to be hard to really say The albumin was the same. And then it's an inflammatory markers all the same, but the only notable difference is they found that the empagliflozin had more EPO than uh, placebo. Again, pretty small um, levels, but different. Why didn't NT pro BNP change? Oh, we just skipped right over that. Why? I mean, maybe it's just too, I mean, they did lose weight. We didn't get to that part. And, uh, but you would expect it to go down more in the empagliflozin. Mm-hmm. And if anything, it was a little bit lower, but not significant. Uh, maybe maybe you just you need more time for that. I'm not sure. DAPA-HF showed that it went down in all of the preliminary studies in the heart failure. You know, the I don't remember if it was DAPA-HF or the first uh, phase two study, but it was about four weeks. So a little bit longer than here. Yeah. But if you're showing weight reduction and you're showing changes in plasma volume, doesn't totally- BNP should follow. Yeah. I love that the copeptin, though not significant, fell twice as much. So the copeptin is a, uh, a precursor. I think it's a precursor of ADH. So it's a good, it's a more stable way of measuring ADH. And there was a, there was a study that came out, I think the same month as this one in CJSON that showed that SGLT2 inhibitors were an effective therapy, though not very strong, but an effective therapy for SIADH. What journal is that? Clinical Journal of the American Society of Nephrology. Oh, a renal journal? A renal okay. journal. It is. It is. Oh! Kidney. Kidney. Thank you. Nadia, <laughs> this is your last time. We're never coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I, I have one more, one more result, everybody. I saved the best biomarker for last, okay? And this is something that is highly technical. Uh, I saw the first paper. It's been a while since it was published, uh, but it is called Weight. And it decreased more in the impa than the placebo by about one kilo. And I think you know that's something that I think is very important too. Fourteen days only, you've got a four, you got a, a one kilo weight loss, and then uh, also looked at total body water, and that changed too in a similar fashion. So um, save the best for last, but I mean you can't argue with that. You know what that reminds me of is the telvaptin studies in heart failure, Everest. <gasps> 
that from didn't back work. In the day. But they, they should maybe they need, to, they need to study that in an outpatient population. Have they done that? Well, Everest was in, it started as inpatient. as acute decompensated heart failure, but they continued the drug for a year, so it was mostly an outpatient study. And they did have significant results for the inpatient phase, like the quicker resolution of dyspnea or some some other BS outcome for that. But the the real money shot was trying to see improved uh, total outcomes, uh, heart failure, uh, hospitalization, and mortality, and there was no difference. But there were significant changes in body weight. Tell me more. So in the tolvaptin studies, especially in the short term, like you mentioned, in the hospital, there was a shorter time to resolution. But when you followed over time, there was a greater reduction in body weight. Mm Mm-hmm. But it just didn't correlate with outcomes. And I think in a sick, half-ref population, part of the challenge is that the most of the deaths may not be happening related to heart failure. They're dying because of- Could you imagine a scenario where you had people on ACE inhibitor ARB, um, Secubitril, SGLT2 inhibitor, uh, Tolvaptan, and then what else went to- Aldosterone antagonist. Aldosterone antagonist. Beta blocker. No, sorry, I forgot that too. <laughs> Rivaroxavam. That in there. That's a lot. But yeah, I, I, I was so excited about Everest. I mean, it, it sounds like we need to do that. We need to block that hormone. It's and, and just like all you know. But I don't have any more. We're results. done with. Don't we're do done that. with the results. Sadia, do you have what, what? What are your what are your thoughts on this thing? I think this is a really interesting study overall, in that we have been grappling with the question of how do these drugs really prevent heart failure. And it's really predominantly a heart failure story, whether you're looking at primary prevention. So even in people who don't have heart failure, it seems like the benefit or the relative reduction is about 30%, whether you had heart failure going into an SGLT2 inhibitor study or you didn't. And I think that's really important that it's consistent, whether you already had heart failure or you didn't. And had the previous data looked at um, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Is that is that new here? So I, I think that is a new aspect of this. The ongoing studies right now for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and the large um, clinical trials looking at outcomes are still ongoing. They're um, hopefully going to be concluded. DAPA-HF was all a reduced ejection fraction. All reduced ejection fraction, yep. The challenge, though, I think is that it's a very different population. So grouping them together is challenging. We know that patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction tend to have lower NT-pro BMPs. So one of the reasons I bring up the question of why didn't it change is there's two big things that are different about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. One is this obesity paradox that is definitely related to the level of elevation of NT-pro BMP where individuals who have a higher body mass index tend to have lower NT-proBNP levels. And it's not quite clear if that's a production or a clearance issue. Do they have better outcomes? No. So the so the BNP, if your BNP is lowered because you have a high BMI, it doesn't give you, a, it doesn't help you. Nope. And the stretch on the wall is different. Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction tends to be a dilated cardiomyopathy that is related with greater stretch and can lead to much higher levels of NT-proBNP even in the sickest patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, they don't get near the same level of elevation of NT-proBNP as patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction do. Even if you measured and got a direct measurement of pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, they could have the same pulmonary capillary wedge pressure and they wouldn't have a far lower NT-proBNP level. So mixing them together is challenging. And I think interpreting these data with both types of heart failure here is difficult. So... One of the questions I think they were, you know, at least indirectly trying to answer is, do we think the heart failure benefit from these drugs comes from the diuretic activity? Do we think that there's a one-to-one correlation there? 
is this a glorified diuretic? Is well, or uh, not even glorified? Is this a is this the diuretic that you need in heart failure? Because we they I'd call it a diuretic enabler. I like that. So I think there's something about that synergy, right? That maybe just alone it wouldn't be sufficient. And in some of our sickest patients, this probably doesn't have enough of a diuretic effect if you're looking at furosemide or bumetanide doses that are this high. One of the things that drives a lot of these outcomes when you look at Empareg and um, Canvas was um, heart failure, uh, admissions for heart failure, yep. right? So symptomatic heart failure. And it seems like a diuretic would be a great way to reduce those admissions. Yeah. And typically that's why the standard of care for decongestion has been loop diuretics because in the short term they work. Problem is long-term they have a lot of consequences that are unfavorable. And so potentially, is this a way to minimize the chronic loop diuretic dose? And I think there is something to be said about this idea of sequential nephron blockade. And so they excluded people that were on thiazides, but plenty of very sick heart failure patients need a loop thiazide and are also on an MRA. And could this be kind of the fourth in that group that will then allow you to lower loop diuretic doses where they're not leading to unfavorable consequences, but you still have a little bit of loop on board. Paul, what were your thoughts? I think there's a lot of interesting renal, I mean, kidney physiology in this. It's going to catch on. Uh, <laughs> that deserves uh, some discussion. I, I think, why is it that uh, these things are enabling the loops to work better? And I, I do like their interpretation or speculation that this has something to do with the macula densa and the way that it's sensing sodium chloride. So when you use a loop, uh, it's inhibiting the ability for the macula densa to sense sodium. So it's it's kind of locking that, um, that in an off position, if you will. And these things come along and... Um, alleviate that. So they're uh, bringing more sodium to the macula densa. And so you, they're counterbalancing this. Right. So uh, hold on, Paul. I just, of the Paul hold on yeah. just a second. I just want to make sure yeah. that we walk through this physiology step by step. Okay. Sure. So normally when you get excess sodium getting washed through to the loop, this is an indication of a lot of filtration without reabsorption. Kitty doesn't like this. You have uh, salt receptors, which are just the sodium-potassium two-chloride receptors in the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. When those are activated, walk me th- tell me if I'm wrong, that's going to feed back to the glomeruli, going to cause mesangial contraction, right? And a- yes. afferent arterial vasoconstriction. So we call that a feedback mechanism. And what I'm thinking of is more about the renin release mechanism. Now, what happens also, How does the renin get so, released? Uh, so uh, renin is released by the same mechanism of sensing sodium chloride through the transporter and KCC2. So when there is too little salt delivery, this um, activates the macula densa um, to stimulate renin relief. And that's why the loop so, diuretics would increase the renin. Exactly. Ah. And so now you come along and you give more sodium to the macula densa. Somehow this stops that. And I, I don't exactly understand why that is. Is there some kind of competition between sodium delivery now 
and uh, uh, bumetanide or furosemide binding. They, they uh, share common sites. So maybe it's that. Paul, do you think taking a peripheral measure of renin activity is a decent way to measure this intraglomerular renin? Or do you think we might be getting might be getting two different signals here? So I think that that's a really tricky question. And maybe Matt is better equipped to, to answer that. I, I think that there is an intrarenal effect for sure. But uh, I think the systemic effect is, um, is measurable. So... So I, I think if you that, look at the, the animal studies looking at um, the renin that is uh, released after giving acute um, loop diuretics is very measurable. Right, right. And so, yeah, and I think that that's coming from um, the JGA. So I think that um, it should be measurable. Okay. So I, I think that from that point of view, we have a potential mechanism that needs to be looked at. And then two, this mysterious effect of these things to stimulate naturesis with, that seems to be unrelated to the osmotic load. So that, that's a little bit of uh, kidney physiology that we need to figure out. Swap, do you have any thoughts? I put them to sleep. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> these are, I mean, we have, we have ignored uh, proximal tubules for a long time. And maybe this is the, you know, the revenge of the proximal tubules. It, this makes me, in fact, wonder uh, why we never... Uh, you know, at least I have never, almost never used acetazolamide. And I wonder if, uh, again, it, it's got other metabolic problems. Uh, maybe that's why it's not popular. It's funny. Um, Just this month, I had a, um, a cardiorenal patient who was uh, unresponsive uh, to diuretics. And uh, we kicked him over and got him got him peeing again by adding acetazolamide to uh, a, a ferrosamide drip. And it was a, and the, the, the fellow's eyes popped when it worked. He couldn't believe it worked. So I, I think there's something there. I think acetazolamide does have a role uh, when you can't when you just can't get the urine up. But do we think there could be sex differences in the physiology? Because I'm shocked at the number of the proportion of women enrolled here. When we know that in general, women make up at least half, if not more than half, of the population with heart failure. I mean, it just goes back to what we've known about research over and over again: is that women are under enrolled in these trials. So it sounds like another thing with this study, with the with the small number of patients that were included, the heterogeneity and types of heart failure, uh, the male preponderance of patients included. It's first surprising they found results that seem to be real, but also it makes you wonder if you need to really study this in a larger group of patients to kind of get understanding of how this stuff works. But we don't. We definitely know, at least in animal studies, that male and female mice behave a lot differently as far as their kidney physiology goes. And I'm sure, I don't know enough about the heart literature, but I'm sure it's very similar. Last question. Do you think we would find similar results in a non-diabetic population? Mm. Well, maybe because it looks like the glucose urea didn't really matter. Yes, that is interesting. The glucose urea didn't, didn't seem to affect the FENA in the way that we would expect. Sounds like that's the next study for this. Absolutely. Do we want to collaborate yeah. together? Everybody's, Everybody's like, like, I gotta I'm sleep. not doing any heavy water. <laughs> I gotta go to sleep. I three albumin delivery. Very interesting. I, you know, I, I, I was skeptical uh, to see a human study of ten and ten, um, but I, I I like it now, and I should have uh, I should have read the paper before I, uh, you know. <laughs> okay. Uh, anybody else have any other comments on this paper? I think we've we've put this one to rest pretty good. We've gone long. Does anybody have any, uh, do we have anything, any major developments in COVID? We got the Rendesivir study. 
finally came got published. Looks like a, this, a group. Of- there's another uh, Remdesivir study as well. So what's the second? You know, one? apart from yours, uh, the other one was. Uh, uh, I love that I have. I Rem- love that I have ownership of the drug. I pre- yes, I do appreciate yes. that. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, ladies, uh, yes, um, that's right. I've I've copyright. Yeah, there, there, so there's another uh, Remdesivir of five versus ten days. And um and and my of course complain about uh, it. It didn't seem to show much of a difference, and maybe ten days there was a little bit more toxicity. So five days may be enough. But my uh, complaint about the study was that they excluded anyone with a GFR more than fifty. So you know, it, 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 again, it's the renalism again. Uh, you know, so there is a, a little bit of a concern that maybe. It's not remdesivir that's toxic to the kidneys, but it comes with a, I think, not a solvent. They call it an excipient, uh, and the excipient is has has renal excretion, so it can accumulate, uh, and it can cause kidney failures theoretically. But you know, it's it's extremely rare. Uh, so it's the routine. Ex- to me, it looks like the routine excuse. You know, oh, let's exclude pregnant people, uh, let's exclude women, let's exclude patients with decreased kidney function. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. Okay, so we got a couple of studies of remdesivir. It seems to be a moderately effective drug it does not we mm-hmm. with the that mortality benefit that they showed that they tri- that was trending towards uh, significance mm-hmm. did not turn out when the when the full study yeah. right yes yeah, so it's like 3.6 percent absolute decrease which wasn't you know that's point oh six or yeah. something yeah i think it's still pretty good uh, mm-hmm. and then there's the lancet had this huge um, dump of data on hydroxychloroquine that stuff looks really dangerous uh, but I, we don't believe that data. So there's a lot of conversations going on about how these people got their hands on, you know, uh, the, the number of hospitals they have in Australia uh, and the number of deaths they report in Australia are more than the number of deaths that happened in Australia during the period of time. No, no. So wow. it's, it's, a, it's a genuine. And like they have patients from Canada as well and, and UK. And it's like, how did these guys get hands on that data? It's like, um, you know, some it's some, some kind of an EMR uh, software data analytics company. So there's really? a lot of discussions going on on Twitter. Yeah, and it. it, it uh, I have steered way clear of that. I, I saw some of the discussions. Like you, like you see that little fight going on at your high school mm-hmm. in the corner, and you're like, I kind of want to look at that, but then you're like, actually, I'm out of here. Yeah, I'm getting. So, so this the, is the World uh, Health it, Organization. This was the study they they put together right at the peak of the epidemic. No, no, no. Am I right? So, so the the Lancet the Lancet study is a retrospective big data study, gotcha. not a clinical trial. But as a result of as a result of this coming out, it says that you know mortalities goes up with hydroxychloroquine up by 20, 40 percent or something. Mortality goes up, right? Uh, as a result of that, the WHO stopped the hydrochloroquine arm of their large clinical trial. Gotcha. Stopped um, and stopped enrollment. Stopped enrollment of that of hydroxychloroquine. On the other hand. Uh, the the study that I find is the most rigorous is running out of Oxford called Recovery. They have got more than ten thousand patients enrolled in uh, you know with five arms, and they their DSMB is looking at the data every two weeks, and they said uh, we are going to continue. Uh-huh. Um, so that tells me that uh, you know it, that this this Lancet paper has got some issues. You know, a twenty forty percent increase would have shown up. Just in a t- what is happening in in the world of medicine and literature and i just don't even know what to say like yeah you know you think we learned our lesson earlier on in, in the covid pandemic but it seems like we're, we're still how does that paper get into lancet if that that many problems i don't understand yeah. not good not good. i did have one uh, reader uh, no a listener comment oh please uh, so we we have we have some listeners who listen to our podcast okay <laughs> not, not not this deep in that's for sure 
<laughs> so um, there was um, uh, Louis Moist. Uh, she is a nephrologist and professor of nephro uh, of medicine at uh, University of Western Ontario in uh, London. Baclofen. Um, yeah, yeah. She had the Baclofen paper just came out. Yes, uh, so she's uh, she works with Amit Garg in that group, uh, and so she listened to our discussion. This is way back uh, the Patiromer Amber trial, and I think we had a discussion about you know I wonder why all the trials are named after gems, mm -hmm. opal and amber and uh, pearl. I thought it was all uh, so, the money that they're making. Yeah, <laughs> so it seems that the first study was pearl, and and these the structure of Patiromer is like a, uh, a spherical bead. So it looks like a pearl. So the, the first study was pearl and they said, hey, this is uh, nice. Let's keep on with the gems. Um, so a listener who's giving us, you know, who's actually listening and, and giving us some feedback. Very cool. Uh, and otherwise she loves our podcast. I didn't pay her to say that. Okay. And she had a recent study out, KI, that showed the uh, toxicity of baclofen in patients on dialysis. And there's going to be a rip-roaring editorial coming soon. So be ready for that. Uh, Matt, do you want to um, go to iTunes and read some of our reviews out loud, and then we can uh, and and we can make this a recurring motif of the podcast to try to get people to add. And are we going to are we going to filter just the good ones? Or are we going to we well, no, 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 no. I think I think that's the that's the joke is that we will read all reviews, whether good or bad. Right. Oh. And allow people to find their way. This is how they could get on the podcast by writing a review. And uh, we, we will we'll keep it clean. <laughs> We'll keep it clean. Okay. All right. Well, let's start with the first one here. Uh, Gerald uh, at GrepMed, he says this, or she, he or she says this, a podcast I didn't realize I was missing. Great way to stay up to date on things kidney. Hosts are delightful and incredibly knowledgeable. I think he's got the right I podcast. Turn, I, I turn this on. Okay. Sorry. Here we go. I turn this on to put myself to sleep one night, but they managed to keep me awake and I wanted more. So I had to switch to a lesser podcast. Will definitely be a regular part of my rotation. Thank you, thank you, and uh, your check is in the mail. Um, uh, here's another one from Brifkin, and Brifkin gives us uh, five stars. Uh, it's GFR eight. Great, you know. <laughs> uh, as a community nephrologist. For the past 15 years, I have missed these types of discussions. I will definitely use this resource as a springboard when teaching medical students and residents. Thank you so much, Brifkin. We really appreciate your support. And, uh, okay, here's a good one, too. Uh, Kus, five stars. Nephrology isn't intimidating anymore. Highly recommended podcast for all healthcare professionals. Great crew who clearly love teaching in fun and accessible man manner. Time well spent. Oh, that's awesome, Matt. That's pretty good. So yeah. uh, everybody, please go rate and review this podcast. And, you know, this is your opportunity to get Matt to say whatever you want him to say. You can get him to advocate for Baclofen. Just put it in your review. And, renal, and, renal. and you can put it in pronunciate. Yeah, have put it in renal and see and, and just watch Matt contort. <laughs> okay. This has been a, this has been a great podcast. Thank you. Oh, and thanks for our guest as well, Paul. Sadia, thank you. Thank you very much yeah. for coming, and you're welcome back anytime. Yes. We will start using HefPef and HefRef in our normal conversation. If you will help us and, get and, rid and of the Sadia, you are, you are outstanding. The next time we have a cardio-renal topic, we're definitely going to invite you back. And I will be sure not to say renal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Woo okay. All Thanks right. a lot, have, guys. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you. Good night.